listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. indeed. Welcome to the show. My name is Eric Daw. This is the Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast. Yay! With me, as always, is my lovely wife, Melissa. Hello, everybody. We're coming in late for November, but that's okay. I mean, actually, we're recording this the last day of November, but the podcast probably won't be posted till the 1st or 2nd of December. And so we really missed November, but that's all right. It's okay. No big deal. We, uh, what can I say? I have excuses, but you don't want to hear them. We were sick, though. We were sick, and it was Thanksgiving. We're still a little sick. Our voices are a little goofy. Yeah, sorry, everybody. But we're hanging in there. Uh, we've got plenty of questions. Let's just jump right in. What do you say? Sounds good. We get Why not finish the inside of acoustic guitars as well as the outside? It seems to me that it would be a good idea. It should prevent the backs and sides of high-end guitars from cracking and seal the guitar more thoroughly to keep it free from humidity problems. Thoughts? Thanks, Kurt in Alaska. That's a great question, Kurt. Uh, I would encourage you all to participate in this podcast. It's easy to do. Go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, and send me a message there. Or you can call and leave a voicemail at 757-774-8482. You can also text that number or, um, yeah, that's it, right? Yeah. Participate in the show. Uh, Kurt asks, why don't they finish the insides of acoustic guitars? Well, actually, Kurt, I think some some companies do seal the insides of guitars with shellac or a sealer like that, you know, just a thin wash coat. Um, most don't. And uh, for a few reasons that, you know, come to mind, one is it's an extra expense. Another is that it's... Um, it would it would change the the tone pretty significantly uh, to have a hard finished surface uh, on the inside of an acoustic guitar would would pretty drastically change the tone of of an acoustic guitar. Uh, the other consideration is that um, you're gluing all you know braces to tops and backs and. The, all the kerfing around the edges, um, and you you want to be gluing bare wood to bare wood, so you'd have to assemble the guitar and then finish it. So you'd have to spray it from the inside, 
just not a very practical way of doing things. So like I say, a lot of builders do seal the guitar on the inside with like a wash coat of shellac or something, but um, it's just not practical and really not necessary, you know. Uh, as long as you keep your guitar properly humidified, then you shouldn't have problems with cracks. But I know it happens. It does happen. You know, I get it. So it's an interesting thought. And uh, one thing that a lot of builders do uh, for the sides is they put um, reinforcing strips along the sides to keep the, the sides from splitting. And that helps. But, um, yeah, great question. Thanks, Kurt. Have you ever thought of that, Melissa? Has that ever occurred to you? It's never even crossed my mind. Yeah. I think you got the good microphone tonight. Well, good, because I have the worst voice tonight. Okay, well, that's that's (laughs) fine. Uh, Next question. If different tone wood doesn't make a significant difference in tone from one guitar to the next, as you have previously claimed... Why doesn't every guitar company just use the cheapest wood available, like pine? Why use a more expensive wood like ash if there is no tone difference? It doesn't make sense to me. I'll stick with premium woods like alder and ash. Love the show, even though I don't always agree with you. I listen to every episode and enjoy it very much. Thanks, Bill in Vancouver, BC. Cool, Bill. Thanks for listening and thanks for submitting a question. You know, um, there's there's more to consider when we're thinking about solid body electric guitars, uh, there's more to consider in wood choice than just tone. Um, For example, uh, you know, you mentioned alder and ash. Well, those are, those are actually, those are actually pretty cheap, common American grown woods. Um, So they are, you know, they're, they're not really, you know, people consider them like, premium tone woods. Well, they're kind of not really. Um, they are because they, you know, we, we build Fender style guitars out of them and other things, but, um, they're the reason that they, uh, used those woods in the first place is because they were cheap and plentiful and stable. And that's the other thing to consider. That's why most builders don't like pine is that it's not particularly stable. Uh, it shrinks and expands, and is prone to cracking much more than some of those other woods that you mentioned, like ash and alder. Um, and I've seen it plenty of times. Um, alder bodies, or excuse me, pine bodies, developing cracks, and uh, they have a tendency to to shrink and expand and warp. It's not the most stable wood. It's really not the best choice. Um, I've I've built guitars out of pine, and I liked the result. I don't typically use pine. I think I've, I think I've made three or four out of uh, ninety guitars that I that I've made were pine. But yeah, that's my answer. What do you think, Melissa? Uh, I guess I didn't realize that a solid body guitar could crack. It makes sense. But yeah, what what do you do? Do you just fill it and then and refinish the part? Over it, or what, how do you fix it? Well, it depends on how bad it is. I mean, uh, you, you wouldn't want to use any filler if you don't have to. Huh. You you would just try to glue it. Well, yeah, interesting. Uh, all right, great. Next question. This one comes from Shane in Tempe, Arizona. Love the show. Keep it going. 
Here's a question for you. A lot of people ask, what kind of pickup should I get? And I'm wondering the opposite. Are there any pickup brands that I should never get or brands that I should stay away from? Mm-hmm. Thanks in advance. <laughs> that's a that's a sneaky question, Shane. It's kind of dangerous. You're right? asking me to badmouth some companies. Yeah. Um. Well, I uh I wouldn't really say to steer clear of any name brand pickups. You know, there's there's plenty of of quality pickup manufacturers out there and you know i tell people all the time that choosing a pickup brand or choosing a pickup in general is a lot like choosing an ice cream flavor it's it's pretty subjective and and what i like may not necessarily what be what you like but as long as um all the ingredients are quality you know it's hard to go wrong uh, on a certain level however I will tell you that there are a lot of um, Asian-made uh, replacement pickup companies that have popped up over the last few years, and I've seen a lot of people that want to take like a cheap guitar, like an Epiphone or a Court or something, and take out the cheap Korean pickups, and then they buy these cheap Korean replacement pickups, and they think that they've made some kind of an improvement it's a lateral move at best and a lot of times it's you end up uh what i think is worse tone um gosh i hate to even mention the company but i will it's gfs if (laughs) if you if you if you buy gfs pickups it's guitar fetish site or something like that um I would I wouldn't um recommend that particular company. And and just unless you're just looking for bottom of the barrel just the cheapest parts you can get just for a project and you don't want to spend any money. But if you've got a cheap Korean guitar and then you you want to put those you know, you want to put some other cheap Chinese pickups in there then what you know, what's the point? They're really I've never heard any that I thought sounded any good. They're pretty bad. In fact, I ordered some of their, um, I guess they're not going to advertise with us anytime soon, are they? I have bought some of their Dan Electro lipstick tube pickups just because they're like $20. I mean, they're really cheap. And they sounded so bad that I literally just threw them in the garbage. Well. Yeah. Well, they couldn't even be salvaged with a, rewi- a rewinding or anything? They were just garbage. Well. Yeah. Well, all right. So, uh. I feel bad. You don't feel if, bad. If you work for GFS or you own the company or something, sorry. It's just one guy's opinion. What do I know? <laughs> you know? You have millions of customers. What is, what, what do I matter? All right. Next question. Did we cover that one? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. Did he ask anything that I glazed over a lot of times i do that you know i listen back to the show and uh sometimes someone will ask like seven questions in their in their paragraph and you'll miss one and and i miss four of them oh that's all right sorry i gotta keep you on your you know that's the thing about this show is we just try to keep it entertaining right we're doing a good job tonight aren't we and sometimes you know the information is uh the information is there, too, but, you know, if it's not fun to listen to, what's the point, right? 
So ask us better questions, people. No, that's not what I'm saying. Here's the deal. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm hinting at. You know, I guess, you know, I guess you, you've, you've made it. That's the, what I've heard is that you haven't made it until you're getting some, uh, criticism, right? Oh. And I've, I've been around the internet a time or two and I've seen a few criticisms of the show and, uh, that's okay. It doesn't, you know, hurt my feelings, but, um, one of the criticisms was that we, uh, we cram about five minutes worth of information into an hour and a half. Ouch. I know, right? And that's just not the case. So, uh, whoever wrote that was not listening, but you know, that, that's what I'm trying to say here is that there might be some filler here and there, but it's not filler just to fill time. We're trying to make an entertaining show and an entertaining experience for you. And uh, really, you know, what I hope is that people that maybe maybe don't even play guitar, but they're listening with their guitar playing friend, would at least find the show enjoyable enough that they that they listen. Right? Yeah. Well, I don't play guitar and I listen. You don't play guitar and you 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 co-host the show. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Next question. Hey, Melissa and Eric, thank you for answering some of my questions in your podcast. It is always very interesting to hear your perspective on things. So here's another one. I am currently kind of in the market for a vintage instrument, more specifically a small acoustic like a Gibson L2. Vintage instruments are expensive and not all sellers are being honest, either because they don't want to be or because they don't know much about guitars themselves. I want to avoid making costly mistakes. So based on your experience, what are the things I should be looking out for when checking out instruments that are for sale? What are the steps you would take when assessing the overall condition of a vintage acoustic? Axel. Hmm. Um, yeah, vintage instruments, um, it, it can be hard to... Uh, yeah, it it can be hard to really assess them fully if if you're not uh super knowledgeable about guitars. Uh well, and the same goes for modern instruments too. It's not necessarily just specifically vintage instruments, but you know, the first thing I do anytime I'm inspecting a guitar and it's hard, I don't know if you're buying long distance over the phone online or if you're in person. Um one thing I would tell you is to go get it checked out by a third party and buy from a store. If you're buying from a reputable dealer, usually they have a at least a two or three day uh, return policy, right? And it's you don't want to abuse that, but um, you know, trust what they're telling you, but then go verify it with the third party if you don't feel confident enough to check it out yourself. But when I'm checking out a guitar, especially a vintage instrument. I'll hold it in my hands, and I will look at every square inch of the guitar. I mean, it sounds obvious, but, you know, it's amazing, if if you think about it, how often you don't do that. Um, you look at the guitar, and you look at it from every angle. You look at every side. You look at every joint. You look at every, you know, where the where the bridge meets the body, where the saddle meets the bridge, where, you know, everything. You look... There's always problem areas to look at, look for cracks running along 
the E string, the high E string under the, you know, under the E string where the pit guard is, there's always, uh, problem area is, is, is a problem area to check out is the neck joint. Is the bridge lifting? Does it have headstock repair? Um, and it's really helpful to look at it under black light if you can. And it's not a bad idea to have, you know, you can buy just a little black light flashlight down at Home Depot. What does that show you? Well, it'll show you, it'll, it'll make uh, any repairs really, really evident. Oh. It's a skilled repairman or luthier can make a, a crack repair or a headstock repair, uh, almost invisible, which is great unless you're buying the guitar and you don't know it's there. Um, it's best to be fully informed. So, uh, you know, shine a black light on it and, uh, Anything, I mean, it will be really obvious if there's a headstock repair under blacklight. You know, things like that well, will show up really, really uh, readily under blacklight. So, um, yeah, I hope that helps. Gosh, what what else did he say? Is there <clears throat> is there any way to, you know, any sure way to say if, you know, the tuners are stock or if... A lot of that is just knowledge that you have to have or do your research. Um, if you know, if you're just looking at a guitar and you don't know what kind of tuners are supposed to be on it, then you know it's just it's really just a case of uh, you, you just have to have the knowledge or you have to do the research about how original the guitar is. Huh. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the question, Al- Axel. I almost call him Alex. Alex. Oh, well, Axel. that's a. Are you dyslexic? Yeah, sorry. Uh, next question. My name is Zach, and I'm an amateur builder. While working part-time for a mass producer of fender-type replacement bodies, I was given some raw seconds with dings, knot holes, etc. that could be worked over for my personal use and practice. Building, but not good enough to ship out to customers. Anyway, I started putting together some of the Telecasters with Stratocaster necks and I had to route out the neck pockets deeper to fit almost 5 sixteenths of an inch. Now, said company claims to have the closest to vintage specs available. So are the vintage neck pockets shallower than modern, or are tele pockets just shallower than strap pockets? And I totally missed that fact. Hmm. Uh, as far as I'm aware, Fender-style neck pockets, which is what we're talking about here, are a pretty uniform five-eighths of an inch or 16 millimeters. And they can vary slightly, but gosh, uh, they shouldn't vary that much. You know, what I've seen vary more is the thickness of the neck. So uh, that might be part of the equation. You know, because uh, the neck should be right around one inch, and I've seen them Definitely, you know, it seems like most uh, replacement neck manufacturers seem to make them a little bit fat, just a hair fat. A hair as in a sixteenth of an inch or a hair as in uh, a quarter of an no, inch? No, no, yeah, like not maybe the 32nd. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, really just a tiny bit, but yeah, that maybe it's just because they were second bodies i don't know that's really bizarre they as far as i'm aware 
Fender style neck pockets are are a, a pretty universal five eighths of an inch or sixteen millimeters, depending on if you want, you know, metric or standard. Right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. Oh, and he says, are, oh. is there a difference between vintage and modern? Not that I'm aware of, other than that little fret overhang you get on 22 fret necks. But that's that doesn't have anything to do with the depth of the pocket. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, great. Next question. Uh, hey again, Eric, how thin of a line do you leave on the top of the frets when you're crowning with a file? And have you ever built amps before or just strictly guitars? Thanks, Jonathan from Victoria, Canada. Hmm. So when you're doing a fret level, you take a long file and you file the tops of the frets. Uh, and then when once you've got that accomplished to where you want it, then you take a crowning file and go over each fret. And uh, I don't... He, so he's saying, you know, when you when you crown the fret, you, you leave just a thin line on the top of the fret. And that's not how I do it, actually. I, I crown the fret just until my previous file marks disappear. So it's... So it's round. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, and and maybe maybe other maybe other people do it a different way. That's the way I've always done it and it certainly works well. But um you know, everybody's got their own techniques and and uh so that leaving a very thin line might be a you know, that's a valid technique, I suppose. I've just never really uh, that's not the way that I do it. Well, it seems like that's that's getting a jump start on when you're going to need a a uh, another fret level, you yeah, know. I don't know, not necessarily. Um, but that's the way I like to do it is is to do the crowning so that my previous file marks just barely disappear. And he also says, "Have you built amps before or strictly guitars?" I don't build amps. I don't work on amps. I don't build them. I only do guitars. But have you ever built an amp? Mm-mm. No. Well, that's not true. I guess I. You had little radio amps. Yeah, for a I while. messed around with little tiny, battery-powered amps that, for a while. You know, I used to collect uh, table radios, Bakelite radios, fifties, sixties, forties, seventies, whatever. If it looked cool, I would buy it. And sometimes you find a broken one, but it's too cool to to pass up and especially if you find them at a yard sale or a thrift store for a dollar you know you can't pass them up and i had quite a collection of broken radios for a while so and i could you know i can actually do a little bit of repair on those but if it was something i couldn't fix or something that was beyond fixing uh i used to build guitar amp circuits i'd hollow out the radio and replace it with a little kit that I bought. You know, you can buy a little printed circuit board kit, for just a one-watt amp, wire it up with a pot, a volume pot, and a jack, and use the existing speaker and the radio, and you've got a pretty sweet little uh, battery-powered, 9-volt battery-powered guitar amp, a little portable guitar amp. I made maybe 
10 or 12 of those. They were pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it doesn't really count. I, well, I disagree. You built an amp. That I think that absolutely counts. Uh, I, I didn't really build it. It already existed. And then all I did was put a kit inside it, a one-watt, nine-volt battery-powered kit inside it. So, you know. Well, I'm just saying, compared to most people who have never even touched an amp... Yeah, that's yeah. me. Yeah. I, in fact, I refuse to work on amps. Well, Here's they're, the deal. they're dangerous. Well, they're really dangerous. Electric guitar amps, they especially um, tube amplifiers, but I, I assume solid state amplifiers as well, uh, they store enough electricity in the filter capacitors to stop your heart when they're not plugged in. The amp's not plugged in. It hasn't been used for a day. It still has enough electricity in there to stop your heart if you touch the wrong thing. It'll blow you across the room. I mean, you'll wake up like, what happened? Or you won't wake up. Or you won't wake up. And that's that's a bad day. I don't mess with amps. I just don't do it. Sometimes people want me to. They say, Eric, mess with my amp. <laughs> and you say no. So, no, I don't want to die. I won't. You know, because there's a lot of things. It's it's pretty simple to clean a jack or spray out a pot, but I just won't do it. If it's my own amp, yeah, I might spray out a volume pot or something. But it's you know, when you have a professional shop, you have to draw the line somewhere because otherwise, you'll just get uh, overwhelmed with. Work that you don't specialize in. It, it once you open the door to amps, it's like, oh, that guy worked on my amp, and then three more guys bring you their amp. That makes sense. I had a. I worked at a, a record store for a while in Idaho. I uh, this is a long story, but I, I ended up working at this record store, and uh, I was also doing guitar repair in this record store, and. People started bringing me, I, I swear to you this is true, people started bringing me telephones to repair. <laughs> this is in the 90s when people still used landline telephones. And these little old ladies with blue hair were bringing me their telephones like, well, I just can't get a signal, Sonny. Maybe you could, can you test it out on your workbench? All right. I mean, I, yeah, all right. I got an ohm meter here. I'll look at it. Well, how can you turn down a blue-haired old lady? There was a telephone sales and repair place around the corner. Oh, and they just and they were getting they were getting confused. Oh, that's funny. And you know, I had a big storefront, and that little telephone place barely was just a door. You 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 missed it. I I mean, I worked next door to it, and I didn't know it was there. And so people had mistaken my you know the record shop for a telephone repair place. I could not figure out why these old ladies were bringing me telephones. Were they like rotary phones or like... Yeah, just all, you know, Western electric Ma Bell, you know. That is funny. Black rotary. And at the time, I was collecting old telephones. So you were like, sweet. Well, and I thought, well, maybe word got around. Like, (laughs) 
That guy down at the record store is into old phones, Grandma. You should take your phone down. I could not figure it out. It was the weirdest thing. Anyway, you have to draw the line. And what I should have said was, sorry, Mabel, I don't work on telephones. I, I'm a guitar repairman and record polisher. That's my story. I liked it. Well. Uh, hey, Eric. I saw at Guitar Center, a.k.a. the Target of Music Stores that they had a heavily worked on 1974 Strat, Fender Strat with your hand-wound pickups put in. And I had to go down to try it since I was so taken with the pink Strat-style pinup you built that I saw at Emerald City Guitars. Turns out it sounded amazing and it played great too. I tried it against a stock 74 Strat that was 2.5 times the price, and to my ears it was no contest. The guitar with your pickup sounded so much more alive rich and responsive and was infinitely more inspiring you got to use this as a testimony i swear to you i did not write this <laughs> i know that this sounds like such an obvious plant and i and i i considered not including it in the podcast in the podcast because it's so biased uh anyway yeah I'm curious if you worked on this guitar personally, did any of the repairs, or if someone just really liked your pickups and decided to put them in there. Does this ring any bells? Possible fret files question too, as I'm new to guitar construction. How much of an effect do substantial cracks in a guitar's body or broken headstock have on a guitar's sound once these have been repaired? Is it just cosmetically blemished? And still really looking forward and interested in the Tele-style guitars you've got coming up. Do any of your guitars ever get spoken for before they make it to Emerald City showroom? Really hope to get to try one out. Thanks so much, Nick. Yeah, I just met Nick today. Oh, nice. Yeah, he came into the shop. He had sent me this email a few weeks ago. But, uh, yeah, I just met him today. Anyway, that guitar at Guitar Center... I, I have already emailed Nick and answered the question, but I guess it's part of the show now. Uh, I didn't put those pickups in it. I don't know anything about it. Somebody must have bought some of my pickups, which makes sense because I do sell them. Uh, somebody must have put my pickups in there, and and uh, that's, that's how that happened. Uh, he says, How much of an effect do substantial cracks in a guitar's body or a broken headstock have on a guitar's sound? Once they've been repaired. Uh, if it's been repaired well, it shouldn't really affect the sound. But what it does have a significant impact on is the guitar's value. Uh, once a headstock is broken or the a body is cracked really badly, uh, that that significantly impacts the value of a guitar, you know, as much as 50%. And... There's always, even if it was really professionally repaired, the best that it could be, there's always a chance it's going to open back up again. You know, if it gets hit just right, or if it uh, takes a dive in the case or whatever, I don't know, things happen, right? And uh, it's something that I usually steer clear of. I, I don't like to buy guitars that have had broken headstocks or major damage like that I steer clear of it and I do this for a living so he also says 
do any of your guitars ever get spoken for before they make it into the Emerald City showroom? Yeah, they do. Uh, maybe not half of them, but maybe 30, 40% of them. And it's just people that say, hey, I've, I love your guitars. Um, I want kind of, you know, rights of first refusal on the next one, so here's half down. And uh, that's how that works. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Nick. Thanks for listening. Everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. You know, I really, it's, it's, uh, we, we couldn't do it if you guys didn't submit questions. And I, and so I do appreciate that. Let's take a little break here and, uh, we will be right back. This is Jay Boone, owner of Emerald City Guitars in downtown Seattle, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers, not only on the West Coast, but around the world. As we embark on our 20th year of business down here in Pioneer Square, we are striving to continue to bring you great service and great products. We're remodeling our whole store this year, and it's going to be amazing. We're also redoing our website, emeraldcityguitars.com, for our online customers around the world. We'd like to give a big shout-out of appreciation for all your patronage over all the years down here at Emerald City Guitars, and we really strive to continue to bring the best that we can to our customers. Visit our website at emeraldcityguitars.com or visit our shop at 83 South Washington Street in downtown Seattle. Our business line is 206-382-0231, and we're open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Remember, Emerald City Guitars, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers and service and repair. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Love the Last Horror Stories podcast. Always fun to hear some gruesome guitar mishaps. I had a question for the show. I picked up a great little telly recently, but the screw holes that hold the control plate have been stripped out, and from the side of one of the holes has opened up into the end of the cavity where the electronics sit. I'm wondering, is there a way to fill in these holes so I can re-drill them at the proper size and be able to attach the control plate again? As always, thanks for the show. You guys are great. Kurt. Thanks, Kurt. I hate that on tellies when that happens, man. Do you know what he's talking about? That hot dog-shaped control plate that the knobs and, yeah. the, and the switch are on? It's got two holes and the screws go into the wood. And they're pretty close. To, they're you know they're pretty close to the cavity, so they can just crack out. Yeah, yeah. Um, really, the only way to do it properly is to is to um, dowel the hole, clamp it in there if you have to, and then wait for the glue to dry. You know, wait overnight and then redrill the hole that way. So when you do that, do you have to uh, like he says that? One of the sides has opened up into the cavity. Yeah. So do you need to like route that part out just a little bit or chisel it out and put before you put the dowel in? No. Well, I mean, it depends on... Yeah, I wouldn't route any wood out, but um, you should be able to uh, use just a small dowel, you know, about the same size as what the hole is, and glue it in. Sometimes you can... Um, sometimes you can fudge just a little bit where that plate is located to line up the holes so that they're sitting in a more proper location. Mm. 
depends on what's going on with the pit guard and everything else. But yeah, it's a problem. Um, if it's more than just a dowel can handle, then uh, you can um, add more wood into the cavity. Just take a uh, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a there would be a a number of ways to do it, but. Uh, it just depends on how bad it is. I I I like to try the minimalist approach first. So yeah. try a small dowel and some wood glue. What about uh, some sort of putty? Would that be? I try not to use any putty ever. Oh, okay. I mean, what do you mean by putty? Like wood? Like wood putty? Yeah, wood like, putty. Like I don't know, like spackle. Like, yeah, con- yeah. Construction putty. Like when there's a nail hole in your drywall. That's what I use. It's putty. No. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I again, I'm not a professional, guys. <laughs> I would use putty, but I'd be wrong. Silly putty? Yes. It would have to be. I'd probably just mix up some flour and water and force it in there. Because <laughs> that sounds like something I'd you're, do. You're not allowed. Just you're put, not allowed around tools. Put toothpaste in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to patch some holes in the, the drywall once, and Eric walked in and asked me what I was using. I sheepishly answered that I was using toothpaste. <laughs> Why? Why would you do that? It just seemed so logical at the time. Nope. <laughs> okay. Well, at least, the, at least the wall smells minty fresh now. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, hey, Eric, question for you or your excellent podcast. What are your thoughts on the aluminum control plate that some vintage strats use ostensibly? Ooh, good word. Yeah, I had a hard time with that one. To reduce the 60-cycle hum from the single-coil pickups. When I was a kid, I lucked into buying a 62 strat for cheap because the body was broken. The neck, hardware, and pickups were all stock, though. But being a kid, I ended up selling it for money to go to Europe. I've regretted that all these years. So a few years ago, I bought a Fender 62 AVRI. I don't know if my true 62 had the plate, but the RI does. Is this proven effective for hum issues? And if so, why aren't they used on tellies? Thank you. Do you know what he's talking about? I have no idea. So underneath a Strat pit guard uh, during a certain era... There was an aluminum sheet that's exactly the same size and shape as the pit guard. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. You know, early on, there's just an aluminum part that goes where the pots and the switch are. It's just a little triangular piece of aluminum. But later, they went to a real thin, I mean, it's just flimsy thin, full shield, full pit guard shield. Sure. Um... Does it work? Well, not really. You know, the problem with the 60-cycle hum going on in strats is that uh, it's it's mostly coming from the pickups. And that uh, sheet of aluminum isn't really doing anything to shield the pickups. It's not actually really doing much to shield anything of it at all. Because in order to shield something, you need to encase it completely in a grounded, uh, uh, you know, metal, in grounded metal, right? And 
if it's just a sheet of metal, it's not encasing it. It's not really ground. It's not really shielded. Um, it's better than nothing, I guess. I, I, although it might be, yeah, it really doesn't do anything. Um, it might help a little bit, but the, the most of the hum is actually coming from the pickups and, uh, you know, that's why when you see, like a like a Dan Electro, the pickup is completely enclosed in a metal tube, and then the wire going to the electronics is shielded, and then you look at the electronics, and they're encased in a, in copper shielding. You know, in order for shielding to work, it actually has to completely encase the electronics. That's what I'm trying to say. So Dan Electros don't hum? Oh, they very little, yeah. The Dan Electros are pretty quiet hmm. compared to other guitars with single-coil pickups. That was the genius of Nat Daniel. You know, he was an electrical engineer, and... Uh, uh, well, I thought he just got the lipstick tubes because he was cheap. That, too. That, too. But, you know, I was reading about it, and um, it was by design... Even down to the point that the gap in between the two halves of the pickup breaks up the shield so that it so that it doesn't. Gosh, how did they put it? It was a little bit over my head. Uh, the gap in the cover decouples the two halves of the pickup so that it it's not like a complete um, deadening wind at like a. I guess that makes sense. When 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 there's a cover, when there's a shielded cover over most pickups, it uh, muddies the sound a little bit. It acts as a filter. And by decoupling the two halves of the shield around the Dan Electro pickups, um, it lessens that effect, apparently. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I know. Really interesting, isn't it? Anyway, getting off base here. Uh... What did he say here? Um, is it effective for hum issues? And if so, why aren't they used on tellies? Well, you know, the reason they're not used on tellies, um, actually, if you look at a telly, the, the neck pickup on a telly is shielded by that cover. And a telly is just a different animal, really a totally different design, um, where the electronics are mounted onto a metal plate. So they don't have a shielding plate because that's what the that's what the control plate is. But again, you know, if it's not if the shielding isn't completely enclosing the electronics, then it's not really doing all that much. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Next question. <clears throat> Eric loved the horror stories episode. The cockroach story was good. You know, I did too. That was the most fun I've had doing this show. The the horror stories were really cool, and I really want to thank everybody that that submitted one. We uh, we had just enough material to do the show, and it was just perfect. Yeah, and we had a lot of fun doing Some that show too. Really awesome stories. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have two questions this month. One, I have a mid level import court jumbo cutaway acoustic guitar. That's a mouthful. Yeah, say that ten times fast. A JC5, I think. 
It's not a $100 Yamaha, and it's not a $2,000 Martin either. It has a solid wood top, back, and sides. It also has onboard electronics. Fishman, I think. When I play certain chords, like an open G, it has a rattle. It sounds like one of the braces on the inside is loose or has come unglued. Where would I begin to find this rattle? What can be done? What are your thoughts? There's there's three things. I'm going to answer this as he... Uh, as we read them. So I'll let you finish the question in a second here, but um, there's three things that come to mind as far as the rattle is concerned. You mentioned one, yeah, the bracing. You might have a loose brace. A good way to test for that is to tap on the top where the braces are and see if you can hear one of them. You know, when you tap on a guitar that has a loose brace, you, you'll you hear it. You'll hear it inside. Um, the other thing to consider on any gu- acoustic guitar with an internal pickup, they're notorious for developing rattles because there's a whole bunch of wires in there that are prone to rattle. And if something comes loose, they, you know, they're, they're usually tucked off to the side in some retaining clips that are, you know, tucked up away onto the side of the guitar or something. Um, But there's a lot of stuff in there that can rattle. You know, sometimes those 9-volt battery traps have springs in them that can develop a rattle. So it might be the electronics. Uh, And the third thing that it could possibly be is some kind of, some loose hardware somewhere, like uh, it it might even be your truss rod rattling or a washer around a tuner rattling it's funny how i mean i've seen guitar acoustic guitars where there's like a washer around a tuner rattling but because of the way acoustic guitars amplify things it sounds like it's coming from the box sounds like it's coming from the body of the guitar cool that's interesting yeah so it could be a number of things i really don't know but to test for a loose brace you want to tap where the braces are, you should kind of know where the braces are running on your guitar. And you can stick a mirror in there, look around. You can stick your hand in there, kind of feel around, see if you see anything loose. Chasing unidentified rattles, gigantic pain in the neck. I've spent probably years of my life doing that. <laughs> and... uh I'm going to have gray hair here pretty soon. Okay. His second question is, uh, also when I was in your shop the other day, we were discussing gold foil, silver foil, Tysco, and Diarmond Mm -hmm. pickups. You explained some of the differences. I also understand some of them are constructed with rubber magnets. This was all very interesting, and I'm still a little unclear on the finer details. Perhaps you could give us a history lesson, your thoughts, and maybe unravel the mystery of these pickups? Thanks, dude. Keep up the good work. Zach. A different Zach than the other Zach. Yeah, we've had two Kurtz and two Zachs this week. If all of our listeners would just please change your name to either Zach or Kurt, then we could keep things... uh in order. Yeah. Or Jonathan. It sure make us a lot, make our jobs a lot easier. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, uh, 
I'm going to be able to give you a brief history lesson and unravel the mystery of gold foil pickups, but I will tell you that when most people, when they say a gold foil, they're talking about the famous Tysco gold foil. And it gets confusing because that weird gold foil was a popular thing to use for many manufacturers, so they end up on a lot of different pickups, some of them Japanese some of them American, and a lot of them look very confusingly similar. So um, it's something that you almost have to uh, that you almost have to just research a little bit and and notice the nuances. Um, gold foil pickups were made by Diarmond, Tysco. Uh, they show up on Harmonies. They show up on Gaia tones. They show up on silver tones, on a whole bunch of different guitars, and there's an amazing website that somebody put together. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I'll put it in the show notes for you. It's a uh, uh, kind of a uh, a Japanese pickup directory, like an encyclopedia of oddball pickups, and I think there's even. I think there's even American pickups in there as well, but it's kind of a gold foil encyclopedia. Uh, but I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next question comes from Greg. I just received a new used Stratocaster with a six screw bridge and found that after the s- setting the relief and adjusting the saddles for action, the saddle screws are about as high as they can go. They are about 50% higher than another strat that I had professionally set up. Is there an optimal height range for the saddles? I've read that some wouldn't mind maxing out the screws since they can chew up your hand when palm muting. Still, I have to think that the angle of the string out of the body is changed as is the distance from the pickups. I know the pickup height can be adjusted, but with staggered pull pickups, the further away the strings, the less effect the staggering has. Again, wondering if there is a preferred height range between the bottom of the string and the body of the guitar at the saddle. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, um... I can't say that I've ever really measured it. You'll know because it will be obvious if the saddles are way too low or way too high. On a Fender guitar, it's just super obvious that, you you know, I mean, you can tell from where where the adjustment screws are, and we're talking about Fenders and and, uh, specifically Strats, but on Tellies as well, you know, if you've got the saddle's sitting all the way low, almost resting on the bridge plate, but the action's still too high, then you know you've got a problem. If, on the other hand, you've got the saddles jacked up almost as high as they can go, and the adjustment screws are sunk way down in the holes, then you also know you've got a problem. And uh, really, the solution is just to shim the neck. It's very common on fenders, a lot of them come with shims right from the factory. Um, some people want to get fancy and frown on shims, but really, it's not a big deal. I mean, they come in... Uh, I've seen plenty of 50s fenders with 
with shims in the neck pocket and nobody seems to frown on those. So, uh, again, it's just, it's just a matter of relative, um, height, you know, between, uh, where your neck is sitting and how high the saddles need to be. You just want it to, to, uh, be, (laughs) it's hard to explain, hard to explain. You, you just want it to be kind of in the middle of where the saddles can adjust, not too high, not too low. And it really just depends on the neck angle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. How do you like that? All right. This one says, hello from the sunny coast of Australia. They're, they're in the middle of winter, in the uh, middle of summer down Isn't there. Isn't that weird? I never could figure that out. It makes sense, but it, it also it does? doesn't make sense. So Christmas in Australia is in the summer. That's right. That's insane. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Do they think it's weird? Because Christmas seems like it's culturally so associated with the winter that, I mean, when they watch Christmas cartoons and it's snowing, do they think that's weird? Yeah, I don't know. Hey, Jim. Or do they have their own Australian Christmas specials where it's sunny? Jim, email us and tell us about Australian Christmas. Like, Because I mean, we're confused. Do you go to the beach? I mean... The, do you have palm trees? Every Christmas carol talks about a sleigh ride. Yeah, I get, a, you could have a sleigh ride a in the winter, sand. A winter wonderland. Yeah. You guys well, are crazy down there <laughs> with your Christmas in the your summer. toilets flush in the wrong <laughs> way. toilets flush in the opposite direction. <laughs> Freaks. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Jim, go on with your question through (laughs) Melissa. Loving the show. Always very interesting. Could you discuss the best method to shim a guitar neck that is sitting too low in the neck slot? Hey, did you talk to to Greg, Jim? Jim, meet Greg. Uh, Is that it? That's That's it. That's that's that's, the question. That's the question. What's the best method? Jim, you, you get right to the point. I like that about you. No messing around Do you just with a put, bunch of flowery yeah. language. Yep. Um, what I do when I shim uh, fender-style necks is I use just a tiny piece of wood veneer. Uh, but anything will work. I mean, I've seen... Uh, guitar picks in there and and the shims from the factory are these weird little cardboard shims is and it, go ahead is it kind of a, a trial and error type thing do you just shim it until it feels right or looks right or do you measure it and find a, a shim that's the right size well um it's usually uh it, it's usually all it requires is just the tiniest shim. The veneer that I use is maybe a little bit thicker than a business card. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, a little tiny, tiny bit goes a long way. Just a tiny shift in where the neck is sitting will make a huge effect once it gets down to the saddles, you know? Huh. Because you're tilting the neck just a little bit, but... um. You amplify that over the scale length of the guitar, 
and it makes a huge effect down at the saddles. So, you know, I rarely have to use more than just a, a tiny bit of a, a piece of wood veneer. And do you glue it on or do you just no stick it in there? Yeah, you just let it sit in there. And, you know, I've read online a lot of people get obsessive about the shim needs to be the full length of the of the pocket. Otherwise, you're losing body to neck uh, vibration transference and yeah, whatever. I mean, I suppose, but really, you're going to make you're going to make the call on. So if I again, this is what I always go back to. If I hand you two identical fenders, except one has a veneer, a thin little veneer shim, and one has a shim that's the full length of the pocket and it's tapered, you're going to tell me just from playing them which one has which, you know? I don't think it makes a huge difference. Um, and we're talking about just, you know, the width of a business card. I mean, it's just a tiny shim. If you have to shim it more than that much, then it's it's off quite a bit. And you don't see that very often on a quality Fender-style guitar. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. That's it for the questions. Another successful podcast yeah. in the can. I'm going to try to do, still, I'm going to try to do a December podcast. I had a I had an interview scheduled for this month. And he canceled, and then I rescheduled it, and then I got sick, and I canceled. I can't really do an interview if I don't have a voice. My voice is still pretty rough, but uh, anyway, I'm still I'm going to try to put together a uh, December podcast still, so look for another one in a few weeks. And send us those questions. Absolutely. Go to ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W. Dot com. Click the contact link and submit your comment or question for the show there. You can also call 757-774-8482. Oh, you know what? I think I have a couple calls to play. We'll, uh, uh, we'll uh, take a break here and I'll come back with those calls. So stick around. You know, I don't know if you know this, but my wife makes incredible leather goods, specifically guitar straps. She makes hand-tooled, amazing guitar straps, and she's sitting right here looking embarrassed. Thank you for saying that they're beautiful. And um, if you want to check out my guitar straps, you can head over to melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. And that will direct you straight to my Etsy site, where, if you so wish, you can purchase and receive a beautiful, handmade, made-to-order guitar strap from yours truly. Do you take custom orders? I do. They're beautiful. You have to see them. Melcoleather.com. Right? Right. Uh, as I make guitars, you know, we share a shop in the backyard there. As I'm making guitars, she's sitting in the other corner making straps, and I see her make these straps. She's so meticulous and so gifted. And Thanks. 
You're such a craftsman. Craftswoman? You're such a crafty person. You're so crafty. Uh, really high quality leather, handmade leather guitar straps. Check them out. MelcoLeather.com. Hey, Eric and Melissa. Well, y'all do a great job. Enjoy your show so much, and I've learned so much. Uh, my question is, I'm a building cigar box guitars, and I started out building cigar box, very simple, from YouTube videos. But now, a year later, I'm making my own frets, neck angle, intonation, wiring it up double humbucker with uh, a telly style, and... Uh, uh, ironically, uh, I have pinup girls on the back. I, that was before I, I had heard about you. But um, I want, my question is, if I'm building cigar box guitars and I'm getting to where they're pretty darn good, but I can't do everything, it seems, you know, everything I learned, there's something more, and there's something more and more behind that. Then you have people's opinions on it and all that. So if I'm building a cigar box guitar from a one and a half inch wide neck, a wooden cigar box. I'm using the best parts that I can get without going crazy on expense. What would you say the most important thing would be to make a guitar just for some good, dirty, sliding delta sound? Would it be intonation? Would it be... Uh, you know, I, I got the scale, I got it all right. But what would you say would be the most most thing, important thing I could do to really make a good guitar sound good without, because um, I just can't do it all. All right, y'all. Thank you, thank you so much for uh, all the work you do on your podcast. It's, it's great, and I'll turn everybody I can on to it. Thanks. Blues man, Roadkill Slim. Right on, man. Thanks for calling. You know, I've never, I've never made a cigar box guitar, so I can't really speak to that specifically. But the concept is the same. You know, whether it's a ukulele or a guitar or a bass or a cigar box guitar, um, there's a lot of things that'll make a big difference, and other things that, eh, don't make that much difference at all. But um, you know, I'm going to assume that uh, you've got nice, even fretwork. That makes a big difference. Quality tuners, that makes a difference. Uh, you got to get that nut cut just right. That makes a difference. That the slots have to be cut properly and spaced correctly. You know that makes a big difference. So there's a lot of nuance, and uh, that all just has to do with um, kind of you know the overall craftsmanship of the of the instrument and it sounds like you've got a pretty good grasp of what of what you're doing there and like you say they're turning out pretty nice so that's that's great um one i guess one thing i'd mention it's a little more esoteric but it's uh um you know one thing that i think about uh is any part of that, if the instrument, any part of your guitar, any part of your cigar box guitar, any part of your instrument at all that that is able to absorb string vibration instead of deflect it, 
that's a bad thing. So if a fret is loose and can wiggle just a little bit, then when you when you depress the string on that fret, that movement um, is absorbing some of the string energy instead of letting the string ring out. You know, if 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 a saddle is loose in the slot, it's absorbing string energy because it's wiggling. It's able to wiggle just a little bit, you know, microscopically. Anytime something is able to absorb the string energy instead of deflect it, that's a bad thing. So that's that's a further step you could take it, you know. You, you want things to fit tight and fit right. You don't want things to be able to wiggle. Um, a lot of times you'll have metal bridges with parts that... Uh, aren't made very well you know that's that's always a uh, that's always a drawback on on budget instruments where where the machining is sloppy you know so you've got saddles that wiggle in in metal bridges and things like that well that's a tone suck i mean that's that's taking the the energy of your string and absorbing it rather than deflecting it and letting the string do its thing so i don't know just something to think about but um a lot of things that matter. I mean, you talked about intonation. That's a big deal. If if it won't stay in tune, then it's, it's not going to be any fun to play, and it's not going to sound good to anybody, no matter how good the tone is. So um, intonation's a big deal. Uh, you know, it, there's... There's like you say. There's always an there's always another step. Always an always another thing to learn, and always an extra step to take. And uh, just enjoy the the process of building and. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for submitting a question, man. I, I really appreciate it. Hi, Eric and Melissa. I, my name is Dean, and I'm a first-time caller, long-time listener. Hey, I'm teaching myself guitar electronics, and I'm working on a Squire Bullet, a uh, nice, cheap uh, lab rat. And... Uh, I got it all back together after replacing the five-way switch, and I replaced the volume pot. And I got it all back together, and uh, it works, but I'm getting a lot of buzz. And I thought about just redoing it all and, and tracking it down, but maybe you could explain to me some places to check first. So uh, I've added shielding to the inside of the pick guard. And I cannot tell if the inside of the body cavity has been shielded with paint or not. It's kind of oversprayed with the body color, so it's hard to tell if that's shielding paint in there. And the three pots are 500K pots, and I replaced the volume pot, and I replaced it with a 250K pot, just mentioning that as maybe possibly the problem. Um and I replaced the five-way switch, like I said. So uh, I will hang up and take my answer off the air. Thanks, and uh, thanks for doing the show. I love it. Bye. Well, thanks, brother. I I, uh, I love it too. It's it's a fun it's a fun show. Uh, yeah. So a lot of electrical hum or a lot of electrical buzz after you've replaced a pot. You know. Um, you you mentioned that you added some shielding. The thing that comes to my mind is that uh, it's possible that you you may have made things worse by adding that shielding. It it does happen. Um, 
if you add shielding and you don't properly ground it, it only serves to make things worse. It it actually acts as an antenna and will pick up more stray RF and make things even worse. So you have to make sure when you shield something that it's properly grounded. You probably did. It's just a guess. I, I don't know. Um, you want to make sure that everything's properly grounded. All the pots, the switch, everything should be grounded. Um, what else to look for? Uh, a lot of times, um, it's a really common and easy mistake to make. Um, switching the the negative and the positive wires that go to the jack, and boy, that'll hum. It, you'll you'll still get a you'll still get some sound, but it'll hum like crazy. So that's another thing to check. Uh, going from a 500k pot to a 250k pot, that shouldn't matter it, it, as far as, as extra hum goes. Uh, that shouldn't be acting that shouldn't be adding any extra electrical hum to the circuit. So I don't think that that's the problem, but there, there's a few things for you to check on. Uh, that's what comes to mind. Gosh, it's always so hard to troubleshoot stuff like that just through a phone call, but you know, I do what I can. And, uh, hopefully that helps and hopefully people out there find it entertaining. I, th- I, I think we've got one more call here. Let's take the, uh, the final call and then we'll wrap it up. Hey guys, this is Mark Balmy, Tupelo, Mississippi. Um, you'd mentioned a while back that you had se- several different schematics you used to wire up tellies and strats and different things, and I was wondering to know if you could sort of expound on some of those different wirings that you do. It'd be really cool to hear. Uh, I like to do that stuff sort of myself, wired up a, a telly like a Fender Jazz bass. Maybe you could explain better than I can, but it turned out really good. So uh, thanks a lot. Really enjoy it, guys. Bye. Yeah, thanks for the call, man. You know, I I just don't... <laughs> this this call is from a few months back, and I honestly don't remember if I used it or not a few months back. And so I apologize if this is redundant, and I apologize to Mark for letting this co- this call slip. Uh, if that's in fact what happened, I don't know. Anyway, um, he's asking about a few different... Uh, of uh, a, a few of the different wirings that I use on the guitars that I make. You know, if you want to read about it, you can go to pinupcustomguitars.com. Check it out there. Pinupguitars.com, same thing. Um, I, You know, there's, there's really a million ways to wire a Telecaster-style guitar, and I think I've come up with a few more that I've never seen anywhere else, and... Uh, I think that I'm the only one doing it this way, but uh, I've got a few different uh, wiring schematics that use capacitors and resistors um, on hardwired onto the switch to kind of control the flow of things when when you're using the out of phase settings, so that uh, you know true out of phase where you've got the really thin nasal sound. I I love that sound. That's that's really 
that's that's my thing you know that albert king sound or the who else has made the out of phase thing kind of famous um early peter green the fleetwood mac guy that out of phase thing is hot man i love that but it can be so thin and so i've come up with a few different wiring schematics to preserve a little bit of that of the bass when you're using um the out of phase settings and uh one of the wiring schematics uh uses a really um uh fancy five position switch it's the it's the it's the four pole five position switch it barely fits in a tele cavity uh it's a huge switch it's like a strat switch on steroids um with that thing, you can wire up a telly any way you want. I mean, anything you want to do is possible with that switch. Uh, it's hard to really go into in on a podcast, and it's actually not something that I really like to talk about too much because um, one of these days I'm going to uh, publish something, maybe a web book or something, uh, with all the top secret schematics that I've been using over the years, there's quite a few of them, you know, schematics that I've developed for Telecaster style and Stratocaster style guitar since I'm kind of a Fender centric guy. Um, but, uh, yeah, eventually I'll, I'll do that. I promise one of these days. Anyway, that wraps it up for this show. I really appreciate everybody uh, listening to the show and especially those that participate in the podcast. And if you never have, give it a shot. Give me a, send me an email, ericdaw.com. Click the contact link and uh, I'll use your question or comment as part of the show. You can also, of course, text or call 757-774-8482. I really want to thank my my wife Melissa even though she's not feeling well and she's also seven months pregnant and uh, did not want to do the podcast very badly but she's really a trooper and she uh, she did it anyway thanks to Michael Van Dieven over at ufoship.com I don't thank him enough um, he helps fa- facilitate kind of uh, uh, some of the more technical things when it comes to posting this podcast on the internet, I have no idea how any of that works. Thank God I have him, because <laughs> otherwise this podcast would not reach you. Thanks to Jay and the crew at Emerald City Guitars for sponsoring the show, and uh, of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next month. Take care. <laughs>